A few weeks ago, I told my audience about a new opportunity and you guys seemed to love it. They sent me the numbers. Hundreds of signups and thousands of dollars invested because I talked about how ordinary folks can invest like the billionaires of the world. How? By investing in multi-million dollar artworks on Masterworks. This fintech platform has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Fox Business, Bloomberg, and more. Masterworks isn't just impressive, their track record is too. Because since 2017, Masterworks has successfully offered and sold three paintings, with each realizing a net annualized gain above 30% per work. Although legally, I have to add, past performance is not indicative of future results, but still 30% is incredible. If you want to join over 400,000 members, getting started is as easy as one, two, three. You can get priority access at masterworks.io slash sad truth. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash cd. That's masterworks.io slash sad truth. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Gad Sad, uh, another unbelievable guest. I'm so fortunate to be able to convince all these folks to come on my show and have chats with me. Neil Ferguson, how you doing, sir? Uh, it's a great pleasure to be with you, even if you are feeling a bit like your surname today. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, For... I kind of, I wish I was called Neil Sad, but it's, it's, it's a, it's kind of has that doom laden quality to it as a surname and we're all sad at this time of year at least many of us are right for, for those of you who may not surmise what we might be uh speaking of uh, neil and i before we started the show i was telling him i may be less warm and ebullient uh, you know as compared to my usual self because yesterday i transferred into the iCloud of the government all of my earnings from all of my creative output including my book because, you know, they are noble and they'll know what to do with my money. And so I gave a heads up to Neil saying, look, if I'm less warm than usual, you'll know why. But I'm so excited to be speaking to you. For those of you who don't know who you are, the three or four people, let me just read a few things about you. So you're the senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford and a senior faculty fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. Previously, you know, you had a long career as a professor at Harvard. Uh, LSE and New York University. Some of your books, I'm not going to list all, I think 16, but some of them, The House of Rothschild, two of them, different eras, The Pity of War, The Cash Nexus, Empire, Colossus, War of the World, The Ascent of Money, Civilization, The Great Degeneration, Kissinger, The Square and the Tower, and Doom. Why is it that you've been such a laggard and such an apathetic uh, loser, Neil? Only 16 <laughs> books? It's not an enormous number by the standards of some authors in the past. The Victorians would have regarded me as a bit of a slacker. Uh, Walter <laughs> Scott certainly have been disappointed in my output. So the great Scottish novelist John Buchan. Uh, but I, I think my my answer to the question is that I've I've written more books than the average academic historian of my generation uh, for two reasons: workaholism. I suffer from that disorder. Uh, my curious addiction is to work. And the second reason is, of course, that although I'm a deeply austere uh, person uh, to the point of meanness in the classic Scottish Protestant mode, I'm drawn to women who like to spend money. And if you have that particular 
weakness for beautiful, extravagant women. You've got to write, on average, a book every two years. <laughs> wow. That, you, we're getting into evolutionary psychology from the get-go. This is, you're speaking in my language here, the heterosexual market. Uh, I meant to say, actually, rather than call you laggard, I meant to say slacker. So thank you for having uh, gently corrected me there. Uh, all right. So let's, let's I mean, the, I guess the first thing I want to talk about is how do you decide, with so many books what your next year or two years, which if we assume that's how long it takes to write a book for you, uh, that you're going to be spending. Is it is it more organic? You know, I I got interested in the COVID situation, therefore I wrote Doom because of course it's a catastrophe. Or did you have an a priori strategy roughly of the types of things you wanted to say by the end of your career? I couldn't have written Doom uh, if it had been inspired by the pandemic. Uh, it would have been too little time because that book was finished in, I think, around October of 2020. And you can't write a good book in nine months, which would have been all I'd have had available. Actually, my books tend to come from my extraordinarily prophetic powers, Gad. I'd, I'd like to talk about that because <laughs> uh, in 2019, I became very preoccupied with dystopian worlds and I, I started exhorting uh, the people I work with to read less history and more science fiction. This was a kind of strange uh, and prophetic intuition in 2019. If you read a lot of science fiction, and I must have read a hundred different works of science fiction around that time, it's amazing how many pandemics there are. Uh, in many ways, the original science fiction writer Mary Shelley started this genre off with The Last Man, uh, one of the earliest works in which a totally catastrophic plague is is imagined and so i was reading everything from mary shelley to margaret atwood's uh oryx and crake which is a pandemic dystopian uh trilogy and then when i was deep into this work i i pitched a book to my editors at penguin on the history of of the future the history of future disaster uh, of dystopia, and they hated the idea. It's like, nah, Neil, go go back, go back to to Stanford, and we'll we'll call you. Uh, but then I read an email on January, I think the third, twenty twenty, from a medical scientist friend, which went interesting new pneumonia in Wuhan, and if you are sufficiently immersed in history and science fiction you know that's how the pandemics always begin, or nearly always. So I became quite certain that the pandemic was beginning and uh, pivoted uh, to write Doom as a history of disaster, not only past but foretold, which I could peg to the pandemic. But I'd already done a lot of the work before the pandemic began. And it was similar with the ascent of money. I'm, I'm only being semi-facetious when I say prophetic power plays a part. In 2000 five or six, I decided that there was going to be a financial crisis of some magnitude. And I wanted to write a book that would allow people to understand where it came from. I don't really understand things unless I know the backstory. That's why I became a historian. And most people are baffled by the financial system because it's usually taught to them in a rather schematic way by economists or finance people. But I just wanted to tell the history of the financial system. So the ascent of money was born from the sense that a great crisis was coming and people would really want to know what the hell the bond market was and why central banks did what they do. 
So the ascent of money came out of a similar sense. Let me say one more thing. Um, these books are relatively short uh, projects that take about a couple of years through the process of research and thinking and then writing and all the rest of it. But some books, a different form of book, uh, t take much longer. If I've got to go through archives and reconstruct uh, a story from the primary sources, as in the case of the House of Rothschild or the biography of Kissinger books you mentioned, that takes much longer. And those books can be five, uh, even 10 year projects. So my average book uh, turnaround may be two years, but some books really take much longer than that. The Kissinger biography will, will end up, I think, having taken almost 20 years by the time I'm finished. And you have a second uh, follow-up to the Kissinger one that's due, correct? Writing it now. I'm oh. in the depths of uh, reliving the Nixon presidency. Uh, that's my afternoon activity, piecing together what, what really happened in, in his life after he went into the Nixon administration. Now, much, I mean, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but a, a lot of your output has been in the form of books. Now, it, you know, in many other disciplines, that would that's perfectly acceptable. That's what we want. But in other disciplines, nobody gives a damn that you write a book. It has to be, you know, the empirical peer-reviewed uh, paper. And I understand you're in history. So is, is it that you use the medium of the book as your conduit because that's the tradition of your discipline? Or is it that the stories that you want to tell can't be put together into a 15-page uh, you know, peer-reviewed uh, journal article. History is a discipline that has flirted with uh, social science methods. I'm an economic historian by training, and so I've written uh, my share of peer-reviewed journal articles, uh, which have been quite quantitative in their approach. The odd thing is that economic history kind of died out as uh, a sub-discipline Economists decided they really just wanted to do applied math and historians decided they they do identity politics And so people who work on the history of the bond market or banking are Basically can't get jobs anymore because there's there's no department of economic history we, we were stupid We should have created departments of economic history back in the 60s and 70s when there was money But but that didn't happen other than in a few institutions so the kind of history I do is in some ways anachronistic in terms of the modern academy. The people I've mentored as my PhD students uh, are finding a, a somewhat desert landscape when they, when they seek to pursue academic careers. Uh, books are still, I guess, the, the path to promotion in a mainstream history department. Uh, but I mean, from my vantage point, there's a problem there, which is interesting, namely that a system of promotion based on books published by academic presses uh, is easy to game uh, by a patronage network. And what happens in academic history is essentially that uh, the gatekeepers uh, will uh, uh, promote uh, and secure book contracts and award prizes to their protégés, and uh, the protégés are therefore able to to win in a, a rigged game it's 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 really uh, a, a curious phenomenon and in that sense i think there's a problem with the way that academic history functions not that peer-reviewed journals are massively better uh, but i think there's a little less room for uh for 
the the kind of patronage networks that that dominate history now. I think for me, I'm, uh, you know, I come from disciplines where, you know, you are expected to be publishing all the empirical stuff. And of course, I've published my fair share. But I find that there is something that creates greater, you know, cognitive flow when you're writing a book, precisely because you don't have the template of the academic paper, right? You don't have introduction, literature review, methodology, right? Now, the content changes, but the template's already set for you. You just have to fill in the blanks. Whereas when I'm writing a book, and, and, and I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on this, yes, I start off with a general outline because when I submitted a book prospectus to a publisher, I have to have some idea of what I'm going to talk, talk about. But there's a lot of organic stuff that comes up. Here is a an eight-page section that I couldn't have told you a priori when I was working on the book prospectus that it was going to be there. In the process of writing this book, it materialized. It was organic. So in your case, how much of your book writing is top-down, I know exactly the 17 points I want to make versus, wow, I never thought I'd be writing about this section? Well, I think writing books unquestionably has uh, an element of, of intellectual serendipity to it you set out at least i set out with a plan a book proposal uh, but in the end you can't prejudge the material you can have a, a a rough map of where you're going but as you enter the landscape uh, then you start to see alternative paths or realize that the path you thought you'd follow is blocked history in its traditional form in which we reconstruct past thought, past experience from the, the documents and other things that previous generations left, have left behind is, is a really quite laborious activity. Uh, it has an archaeological quality to it. In the case of the Rothschild book, I had to read through thousands, tens of thousands of, of letters written between members of the family and many other documents from multiple archives. And my method for many years has been to gather material that, that in itself is time-consuming, and then to arrange it in, in chronological order to try to piece together what happened. And as you do that, that, that in some ways is the, the most demanding process. You, re, you reconstruct the past experience and you build a narrative. Uh, you can't know ex ante what that narrative will be. And in fact, it's quite important not to have made up your mind, uh, because if you've made up your mind, you will start reading selectively and you won't be open to, to being surprised. That kind of approach, which is also what I'm using with the, the life of Henry Kissinger, does create all kinds of intellectual possibilities that don't really exist if you're writing a, a journal article. But these are both good methods. I mean, yeah. I've really gained from sitting down and applying the template. There are certain quite important prerequisites for a good work of uh, social science. When I turn from the Rothschild book to write an article about how the bond market had worked in the 19th and early 20th century, I switched my approach. I stopped reading letters in chronological order and started working with data. And I think these two things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, I would say the best scholars are able to work in these different modes. And that that's very important intellectually. Sometimes it's just about an idea. And that idea could be expressed in a two-volume thousand-page uh, tome or tomes. It could be expressed as an academic article, but the idea could also be expressed as an op-ed in a newspaper. It could also be expressed on, in a television series or in a podcast like this. 
And it could indeed be expressed as a tweet. And it, I think it's a sign of intellectual versatility to be able to operate in those in those different media. Not many academics do that. And yeah. as a result, they actually become intellectually sclerotic quite quickly until they can't actually do anything other than the journal article. And then, of course, they, they say, well, that's only the only thing that matters. And so you end up with a profession like economics where they just sort of score one another's peer-reviewed journal articles in, in a kind of Google Scholar uh, platform without, I suspect, reading terribly much. I shouldn't say yeah. that. But I think <laughs> sort of, yeah. there's a tendency towards intellectual sclerosis that every individual has to fight against. And the best way of fighting against it is to force yourself to express your ideas in different media. Yeah, I mean, it's what you're saying is music to my ears. And I've been I've been saying this for many years in, in several venues. Most recently, I'll be talking about it in my next book where I talk, I have a chapter on variety seeking, one part of which is about intellectual variety seeking. It's not just intellectual variety seeking that you traverse different intellectual domains, but the mode of communicating your intellectual pursuits also should be flexible. And so that's why I started my podcast when few professors had in the past. That's why I went on Joe Rogan when Stanford, by the way, it was actually, I had been invited to speak at Stanford in 2017 at the business school. And the gentleman who took me out, the, the colleague who took me out for dinner prior to my next day talk uh, was saying, oh, I hear that you're, you know, you're a Joe Rogan friend and you go on Joe Rogan. I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, we don't condone that at Stanford, you know, with an air of haughtiness. I said, well, what do you mean? You don't condone what exactly? And he said, well, we don't, you know, we don't do research so that it could be sexy enough so that it could appear on Joe Rogan. I said, well, I don't do research so I can appear on Joe Rogan, but surely it is better to both publish peer-reviewed papers and appear on Joe Rogan than to only do one or the other. But he didn't seem to be of that opinion. And of course, now fast forward four or five years later, I get tens of tons of professors who either ask to come on my podcast or to be referred to the Joe Rogan show. So I, but I think that takes intellectual humility in that you're not living your life in the ivory tower where you only speak to the other five anointed people who can understand what you're saying, correct? That's an experience I've had to the time when I started to do television when I was still at Oxford uh, was similar. And my view was that uh, it's all very well talking to the people who are fortunate enough, clever enough to get into Oxford and Cambridge. But what about the people who don't have that opportunity? If you want to get history to millions of people, only television would really do that in the early 2000s. So I embarked on 10 years when I made a lot of, uh, of quite high quality television documentary material. Some of it aired on PBS. Uh, some of it was just uh, on Channel 4 or BBC in the UK. And I felt to myself, well, you know, people may sneer at me, uh, for being politically uh, to the right, and I was certainly accustomed to that, but they'll surely respect my attempts to democratize uh, the work that I do and make it accessible to, uh, to to the bus driver. I can remember a bus driver saying to me as I was getting on the bus in Oxford, oh, I just wanna thank you for that series you've, you've done. I think it's really great. And I remember feeling very happy about that. My grandfather would have approved of the fact that I was getting the work I was doing to the bus drivers. No, 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 no. Because what's really striking about uh, the academy is that left-wing politics aligns with extreme elitism, yeah. not to say snobbery. Yeah. Uh, and so it didn't at all redeem me in the eyes of uh, at least some of my colleagues. On the contrary, it merely confirmed their darkest suspicions. <laughs> not only was I 
leaning to the right politically. But I was prepared to put my work on television and even to write for Perish the Thought, uh, the, the tabloid press. So you can't really win. And I, I find it quite funny because, as you've identified, the types who sneer at Joe Rogan or, or doing op-eds for the Daily Mail also secretly wish they could be exactly exactly right it's it's an ego defensive strategy right i've mastered the peer review process so therefore that's a laudable mechanism whereas i know that i would suck on joe rogan therefore i must denigrate it as an ego defensive strategy it has to be i think intellectual insecurity and risk aversion are two very striking features of the people who are drawn to academia i mean what kind of people are, 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 are attracted by the idea of, of tenure. The answer must be risk averse, people who know they'd be fired uh, if there was performance related uh, promotion and retention. There are lots of strange pathologies that explain why academia has become so dysfunctional, but that's certainly one of them. My sense is that if you're having good ideas in your field, whatever it is, astrophysics, or for that matter, history, uh, or evolutionary psychology, whatever you work on, those ideas should be accessible to as many people as possible. And if you can't explain what you're doing and, and what you're trying to, to explain to the bus driver, there's probably a problem with what you're doing. I, I don't care how rarefied it is, how technically complex. Uh, if you can't turn it into a podcast or, for that matter, what people call a trade book, a book that can actually be read by non-specialists, then there's a problem with your explanatory capabilities. It's the same as when you are talking to, to kids, uh, which is a, a thing that matters a lot. You should always make sure that the work you're doing can be explained to a bright 10-year-old. And and, and if, if there's no way of doing that, if you're not able to get through, there's probably something wrong with what you're doing. I, I mean, I've said exactly the same thing to my students when they pitch research ideas to, to me. I, some of them are too young to have children. So I'll usually say, if your niece or nephew were to ask you in the elevator, uncle so-and-so, please tell me what you're, can you say it? And if no, that means you're not doing a good job. Okay, right. but speaking of criticisms of academia, uh, maybe that's a, a nice segue to go into the next question. You've left, I mean, you're no longer a professor, correct? You're just a fellow at Harvard and Stanford, right? That's right. Is there is there a reason for that? Is it that you had lost interest in, you know, the full panoply of things that comes with being a professor? Is it that you got tired of the woke idea pathogens? What what caused you to drop out of the professorship game? Well, I was quite enjoying being a professor at Harvard. I was there for 12 years. I taught in the business school and then in the history department. And I had fantastic students and really probably expected to carry on there. Uh, but but two things uh, came along that I hadn't fully planned for. One were the threats uh, to my wife. I'm married to Ayon Hersey Ali. Yes. I believe you will be speaking to imminently on this podcast. <laughs> I've got the whole family lined up. It's unbelievable. Any, any children want to come on the podcast? You'd enjoy our 10-year-old Thomas, and he'd enjoy being on, but you know, then we would both be exposed as the less interesting <laughs> members of the family. And he would probably end up being cancelled for the rest of his life, right. for whatever he would say to you. Right. Uh, but Ayan's, um life was in real danger. It had been for some time ever since she'd come to prominence in the Netherlands uh, as an outspoken critic of 
uh, Islamic extremism, political Islam, call it what you will. But at the time of the Charlie Hebdo massacre in Paris, uh, we were told you need to be very careful indeed because uh, the editor of Charlie Hebdo, uh, Steffi Chabonnier and Ayan were on the same list of people who whose names had appeared in an Al-Qaeda online publication under the headline, A Bullet for Allah. And if you're on a, an Al-Qaeda hit list, you, you really do have to, to, to take precautions. And we ultimately concluded that we couldn't really carry on where we were. We were too easy to find uh, with uh, any normal kind of life. It's not great when you have a police car outside the house every night and you kids had to go to school in... Uh, you know, with bodyguards, all of that stuff was just not not sustainable. And there seemed like a simple solution, which uh, was to be harder to find. And so part of the reason for moving uh, from Harvard to Stanford was to reset our life arrangements so that you couldn't find us our address immediately online and the floor plan of our house. And and there was that motivation. I, I think I would happily have carried on being an adjunct fellow of the Hoover Institution, going there a few times uh, every year, but but there was suddenly a, a, a need to solve the security problem and make our lives more bearable. Then when I got to Stanford, having accepted an offer from the Hoover Institution to be a senior fellow, I had naively assumed that the history department would do what they can do at Stanford, which is to make me a courtesy professor. Naively, innocently, I thought they'll surely be happy to have free of charge, because Hoover would be paying paying the salary, somebody who's been teaching some of the most popular history classes at Harvard. But that turned out not to be the case. And so I found myself with an unexpected sabbatical uh, of potentially indefinite uh, duration. Uh, I wouldn't speculate as to why there was no enthusiasm for me to teach, but there appeared not to be. And so I realized with the uh, a kind of, I suppose, annoyance, but then relief that I didn't have to teach. And uh, after 25 years of teaching at Cambridge, Oxford, NYU, Harvard, I'd, I'd done a lot of teaching. And although teaching is very uh, important and can be very satisfying and can contribute to the intellectual process, because a lot of my books started life as courses uh, at Oxford and Harvard, Maybe it was time for a break, and, a, and and it's given me a chance to do some different things. It's given me more research time. I think if you had asked me, would you like a five-year sabbatical back in, in 2016, I would have said, oh, yes, please. So it's turned out reasonably well, for me at least. Do you, do you think you could ever, there, there could ever be a lure to, to pull you back if some, some other university that handles your security issues were to offer you a professorship? Would you ever consider going back or, or have you too much now enjoyed your freedom from some of the constraints of academia that you would never go back? I've learned to keep my options open. Right. And I would never say never uh, as far as teaching is concerned. I think it's actually quite important uh, to stand in front of a, a class and explain yourself on a fairly regular basis. And so uh, at some point, I'm, I'm sure I'll go back to doing that. Uh, but there, there's, there's probably, there are probably more efficient ways of changing the world than teaching. Let's, let's put it that way. I figured out I'd probably taught about a thousand people in 12 years at Harvard in various different formats of, 
of which maybe 10% had really been meaningfully impacted by what I, I taught. I mean, you shouldn't delude yourself when you're teaching at an elite institution. You are changing the world. Uh, and I'm not even sure books uh, can change the world as much as we think they can. I don't think we would write books if we didn't have a rather exaggerated opinion of what books can achieve. But let's face it, we're not all going to write uh, our version of, of Das Kapital, uh, a, a, a work that really did meaningfully change the world for the worse, of course. Uh, I think we need to recognize that changing the world is uh, really difficult and it requires uh, institution building uh, more than it requires turning up at an established institution and being on its payroll as a tenured professor. And I've become much more interested in institution building in the last few years, realizing that that, that is actually the way that you can change the world more meaningfully than teaching, more meaningfully than writing books. So let me let me give you my thinking about because I'm I'm sort of facing that bifurcation in the road in terms of what you know how much longer I want to stay in academia. Uh, I mean I'm truly being a professor is in my DNA. So you could you could hardly think of someone who who was more meant to be a professor. I knew when I was a very young kid I was either going to be a professional soccer player or and or an academic. And so here we are. But it's become so burdensome to be an academic. And I'm not even talking about the stuff that I discuss in the parasitic mind. I'm not talking about the idea pathogens and all that stuff, which, of course, is problematic. But just the lack of velocity at which things move in academia, right? I, I have a very, very entrepreneurial spirit, intellectual entrepre- entrepreneurial spirit, right? So, so uh, you know, I, I, I move around. I try new things. I'm irreverent to... The orthodoxy, not not by this, not because I'm trying to be, I'm truly entrepreneurial. So, so an intellectual conversation with Neil Ferguson on a podcast might end up, you know, getting me a rush of dopamine more more than sitting in a departmental meeting where we have a task force to decide a committee as to whether we're going to have coffee delivered in the faculty lounge, right? So this the 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 bureaucracy the the small mindedness of academia is i think what's kind of getting to me and and given that i've seen how large a platform i can build whether it be through my appearances i mean just like you did with your television appearances as a filmmaker the things that i can do with my trade books it then becomes difficult in a in a life that requires costs and benefits trade offs to say you know what let me work for the next 4 years on a peer reviewed paper that will be read by 35 people and cited by 12 if if it's a nice paper and so i'm not denigrating academia i'm just or, or that process but at, i'm at the stage in my life where i look at someone like you and i say you know maybe i need to be a fellow at the hoover institution rather than teaching another round of kids well we we very much welcome your coming to visit us and get to know us well aren't I you think lovely thank you institutions like Hoover are few and far between, it would be very difficult to create a Hoover institution anywhere else now. Uh, It's a hundred and change years old. uh, And it's a very unusual uh, entity because it's a semi-autonomous republic, if you like. I can't tell if it's it's Hong Kong or Taiwan, but it certainly is uh, distinct from the the greater uh, Stanford University structure, but, but still part of it. 
and we don't teach unless we have joint appointments, which I don't. Uh, we are concerned with academic research, but also with uh, policy relevant work. And so it's a little bit of a combination of a, an Institute of Advanced Study and a, and a think tank that sits at the center of a major university. If it were up to me, I'd have a Hoover Institution at Harvard, at Yale, at Princeton, right. at all the major uh, US universities, because it would provide a, a certain amount of, of intellectual uh, counterweight to the massive skew to the progressive left that we now see uh, at most universities. Not that Hoover is an explicitly conservative institution, it's often portrayed that way, but there are plenty of Democrats, liberals uh, who are Hoover fellows. Larry Diamond is no conservative, Mike McFall is no conservative, but there are certainly some Hoover fellows who are conservatives and who really couldn't get uh, jobs in academia anywhere else. Right. So Hoover's a place that I think is performing an extremely important role. It is by its uh, design, going right back to Herbert Hoover's original vision, supposed to be an institution for the study of, of, of war, revolution and peace. Uh, and that was that was Hoover's vision with an archive that would allow the study of those things to be done. And I'm happy to say that that approach is enjoying something of a revival under the leadership of Condi Rice. We're, we're really uh, investing in getting historians who are interested in those things uh, to come and work with us. And um, and that that's that's turning out to be a really good reason for being uh, at Stanford. And I'm I'm excited about that not least because having some conscious motivation to influence policy is good. Not all academic work is policy relevant, but war, revolution and peace are pretty important things. Uh, considering that we're at uh, or close to a war right now, we're certainly supporting uh, the Ukrainian war effort on a massive scale. Uh, I wonder if we're really thinking hard enough about where that leads. So I'm I'm quite keen to be devoting the time that I used to spend on students to to reaching policymakers and trying to have at least some influence over the decision making that goes on in Washington and elsewhere. Wow! I uh, recently had on my show a fellow Hoover Institution uh, colleague of yours uh, and a historian, uh, Victor Davis Hanson. Do you know him? Do you know him I well? I do. He's a good friend, and and Victor's an extraordinarily courageous. Yeah. and gifted uh, a classical scholar, military historian, again, prolific writer, somebody who's uh, fearless when it comes to uh, political commentary. And, uh, you know, it's it's just great that, that Victor exists. He's, oh, uh, I know. He's a, he's a wonderful man. And I'm, I'm sort of tigger to his Eeyore temperamentally. Uh, and, and I think there's a sort of nice juxtaposition there. Sometimes I think that we, we, we should really do a a podcast together called Eeyore and Tigger. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think imagine, uh, there's, it's really hard to imagine how, how Victor could, could be associated with Stanford any other way than through, through Hoover. Through Hoover, yeah. to Hoover he'd, he'd be at Hillsdale, I assume. Yeah. He, uh, during our chat towards the end of our chat, and it actually speaks to our earlier comment where I told you I may be less, uh, smiley than usual. Although I think, I'm actually been quite reasonably smiley, although a bit subdued. And I'm towards to cheer you up here. Well, I mean, that's you, you, and you have you have done a very good job. Thank you for that, Neil. Uh, towards the end of our chat, argue. I think it might have been one of the last sentences he said. He said, "You know, it is so nice 
to have an academic who smiles so much. I don't do it enough. Uh, and and one, of, one of my challenges when I have guests like Victor Davis Hanson or Jordan Peterson, both of whom can be somewhat austere and dour, I always joke with my wife, I say, look, how much you're going to bet I'm going to make these guys crack up during our chat. And then usually halfway through the thing, they crack up. And then I'll, I tell my wife, hey, I succeeded again. So I think if if I saw Victor laughing, I'd probably be quite scared. Uh, <laughs> it's the end of the world. But we, we can be cheerful in in the sense that although there are terrible problems in the academic world that you've written about uh, brilliantly, Thank uh, you. The, the mind virus, uh, to use Richard Dawkins's yeah. phrase, is spreading more rapidly than the Omicron variant of of COVID. The fact that we can establish so uh, successfully platforms that reach far beyond academia, the fact that being a public intellectual is far from impossible. In fact, if anything, it's got easier thanks to technology is a reason to to be cheerful. Uh, if we had been entirely shut down, uh, then I think we could we could all be eel together. But in reality, despite cancel culture's ravages, uh, we haven't been cancelled yet. It's only a matter of time, I suppose. <laughs> uh, what are some things that uh, you know you're looking to do moving forward that you haven't yet uh, you know thrown your hat in the arena? So I mean, you, you know, you've been a, f a filmmaker, you've been on television, you've, you've been a professor, you're a fellow. Of course, you're an author. Are there some things that you say, you know, here's what I want on my bucket list next? Well, obviously, to be a professional footballer, but it, I may have left it a bit late. <laughs> Leeds Arsenal to... Uh, Speaking your... of which, can you tell me what's your favorite team so I can decide if I still like you or if you are now uh, my enemy? Go ahead. Who's your well, favorite I team? I grew up in, in Glasgow, where, where football is a religious activity. Exactly. Uh, true. There's Protestant football, Rangers, and there's Catholic football, Celtic. But you may not know this, Gad, but there's also an atheist. Hold on, I'm going to tell you what team it is. Partick Thistle. Correct. The atheist team. And if, if you're not an atheist, when you start supporting Partick Thistle, you'll soon become one. <laughs> the other joke about Partick Thistle is I thought the team's name was Partick Thistle nil uh, <laughs> for years. I, I was a Thistle fan because my parents had left the Church of Scotland. And, uh, and therefore, I, I was uh, a, a proper atheist brought up as an atheist and, and could only support thistle it's pretty hard to continue supporting a scottish football club when you go down south uh, back back in the early 80s i went to oxford as an undergraduate and in those days uh, there was no way of knowing what was happening in scottish football if you were in england it was more or less as if it didn't exist you could just about find out the scores in the newspaper on a sunday and so my interest in in football waned and uh, until I had children, uh, when, once I became a father of first one boy and, and, and then another, and I think I'm up to four boys now, I have one the daughter, she doesn't care about football, but the boys have to care about football, otherwise they're not boys. And so I had to find an English team uh, that I could take Felix, who was my eldest, to go and follow. And it was, uh, it was kind of odd because one had to sort of start from scratch. And we, we kind of auditioned them. We went to see, I remember going to see Chelsea and uh, went to see uh, Spurs. Nah. And we ended up becoming Arsenal fans just at the peak of, of Arsenal's success. Oh, the, the Invincibles. 
we, we were pretty much just as the Invincibles were <laughs> retiring. And it's been a kind of painful downhill slide. However, I think watching a team through thick and thin is a really important part of, of growing up. Um, I, I always tell the boys, you have to experience defeat, taste its bitterness in, in order to really survive all life's challenges. So we are Arsenal fans. Uh, we are, of course, Scotland fans in international football, although I suspect one of my sons has has wayward English leanings. Uh, we won't say which one. <laughs> and so football is extremely important uh, to me, as it is to you. Uh, when, when Arsenal are playing, I and my sons are in constant contact wherever we are in the world, either bemoaning and lamenting our fate or occasionally celebrating, as we've been able to do in recent weeks. And it's just one of the things that I love. Why does it matter? And, and I was trying to explain this to a non-sporting, slightly supercilious Harvard nerdy type. Because life is more like a game of football than a novel or a play. And if you're trying to understand history, you have to remember that, that history is as open-ended as a close game of football. Uh, it's, it's not a, a novel where you kind of know how things are going to turn out or a play where you're, you're pretty sure Macbeth is going to come a cropper the minute you, you sit down in, in the theater. Life is much more, and history is much more like football than it is like 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 fiction or, or drama. And that's my intellectual rationalization for really caring if Arsenal finish in the top four this season. Right, well, can you guess which team I support in England? I should know that. You should know that. Uh, I'm a man who loves things that are beautifully aesthetically. Just like you referred earlier to beautiful women, which I'm sure most men can appreciate. So I don't. I like the teams that play the most stylish. So it, that should be an obvious then hint. Who do you think? That, that, that rules out uh, Millwall, certainly. <laughs> and and Crew and Crew City and Crew City. I don't know this, and it must. You must tweet. You must tweet about this very seldom. I, or I would kind uh, of well, actually, my favorite my favorite player outside of Messi, because Messi is not a is not a human. He doesn't count as a human player. He's from another planet. The human player that I prefer is De Bruyne. Therefore, yes. you now know who who I love. Well, you're going through a glorious a glorious time as a City fan, Man City fan, and uh, and and enjoy it while it lasts because, <laughs> like empires, uh, they collapse, rise and fall, and uh, and we'll all enjoy the decline uh, of Man City when it finally comes. Just as watching Liverpool's renaissance after many years in the yeah. doldrums has been a pleasure to. Uh, even even the neutral. So this is this is probably alienating a really significant part of your audience. <laughs> In my experience, most most Americans glaze over when right. people start talking enthusiastically about what they call soccer, right. not knowing that that's what Etonians christened it many years ago. Soccer right. being, of course, uh, Eton slang for association football. So we, we should probably quickly change the subject uh, because <laughs> I think there's a real danger we won't get off football now that we've started. Hey, let me change the subject to, to spare the audience. The thing that I'm excited about right now is starting a new university. Uh, the University of Austin is uh, being uh, born as we speak in Texas. I just was there this weekend having a very exciting discussion about how this new institution will work. Uh, we have successfully raised $100 million, which is not a bad start. And we have uh, 500 acres of, of land uh, in the vicinity of the city of Austin. Uh, it is a very exciting prospect. 
and I uh, was able uh, on uh, Saturday night to address uh, advisors, uh, supporters, and I hope inspire them with the vision that we are building something new that will be in some measure an antidote to the things that currently afflict the academy, that we're building something that can be as transformative in our time as the University of Chicago was when it was created in the 1890s. Uh, one of the key ideas that I wanted to get across uh, is that in the world of, of, of academia, a, a relatively small number of people in a relatively small number of institutions can transform a discipline, uh, for better or for worse. Much of what's happened in my field history can be attributed to a relatively small number of super advisors who were responsible for training a really large proportion of the generation who came into tenured uh, or tenure track positions in the 60s and 70s. And this this was a, a really dramatic change in the nature of history, which has uh, has really established a, a shift in the nature of the subject uh, that will be very hard to change. But my point was that by the same token, a relatively small number of people uh, can, can transform a field or indeed academia uh, for the better. Uh, power laws apply. Uh, this is what's fascinating. Uh, in the world of academic reproduction, a relatively few professors at a relatively small number of institutions are the gatekeepers and can transform the field if they produce enough PhDs and successfully get them jobs. So I, I try to inspire my, my friends and colleagues in Texas with the idea that it might seem uh, a hopeless task with one university to change the culture of American academia, but it's not at all. Actually, the history right. of academia shows that you can, in fact, achieve an immense amount with, uh, with one institution if you have the right people, the right motivation, and the right understanding of how networks work. Because ultimately, academic uh, history, like the history of most things, is really a story of social networks and the spread of ideas through those networks. There are bad parasites that can spread through the mind, through the network, but they're good ones too. Right. Uh, so I'm an optimist in that respect. Here, I'm trying to cheer you up again, Gavin. There's actually every reason to believe that what has gone wrong uh, can be corrected. But it won't be corrected without the creation of new institutions. I'm quite sure of that. Well, I'll be cheered up when I actually have an offer that is worthy of Gad Saad coming from the University of Austin. Speaking of which, by the way, I will be in Austin. You may have not known this, Neil. Uh, starting Sunday, I'm speaking on Monday in two different events at University of Texas, Austin. But then I'm also meeting a lot of the folks that are related to the University of Austin, some of the donors and so on. Uh, I'm presuming you won't be there. Is that is that true? Not uh, not this week. I have too, I have too bad at, at Hoover, but but I'm delighted to hear that, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to your uh, being able to come once we actually have uh, some buildings built uh, to come and and, uh, and lecture at the University of Boston. That'll, that'll be it's, wonderful. It's be exciting. That'll be wonderful. Okay, last question because I know we're we're mindful of the time. We have about an hour in total. Uh, one, earlier, you referred to your pathological, I'm using the word pathological, workaholism, which I think I'm also inflicted, uh, afflicted with the same condition. Uh, now, that I think I read somewhere, I don't know exactly where in preparing for this talk, that that caused you some regret and that, you know, you weren't as uh, present as a father and, uh, you know, you didn't spend as much time with your children. And oftentimes I finish any chat I have with my guests with the question of regret and let me set it up 
So there are two types of regret that we typically think of. This actually comes from one of my former professors of psychology, uh, Tom Gilovich. He talked about the regret due to action and regret due to inaction. So regret due to action, I regret that I cheated on my wife and now I'm divorced. Regret due to inaction, you know, I, sh- I, should, I should have never gone into medicine. Instead, I should have gone and become an artist like I always wanted to be, right? And it ends up that for the, over the long haul, the long-term view, people tend to regret inactions more than actions. So having contextualized your regret at not having been a, a present father due to your workaholism, what are some of the greatest regrets other than that one that you've experienced? Well, I do think the most important thing we do is uh, to be parents. And uh, interesting though books may be, uh, I'm much more interested in my five children and what they are becoming and can become. And I'm glad to say that uh, although I I regret not having spent more time with them at, at different periods, I don't think I, I failed utterly and I did course correct, I think it's fair to say. Uh, so I, I think I got my regrets uh, under control and used it to good effect. Uh, so that I've I've reduced the the absent father syndrome uh, somewhat, but the other regrets uh, that I have are of a more intellectual nature. I look back on my uh, my teenage years and I regret that I didn't fight harder to keep uh, doing mathematics uh, after the age of sixteen. The English system, which was the only way to get into Oxford, required me to choose. Uh, and I ended up doing A-levels in English, history and Latin. I, I really should have insisted on doing mathematics, although it would have been a problem for the school. Because if you stop doing mathematics, it's really hard to get it back. Uh, and, and that means that intellectually, I always have to do really work with co-authors uh, if I want to do anything econometric, because my, my math, as they say here isn't it's just not up to to scratch so that that's an intellectual regret and i have another intellectual regret uh gad i i learned german to a pretty high standard my french is uh is okay it's good enough for reading i speak it like a scottish schoolboy Uh, but i think i i really uh shirked learning a difficult non-european language when i when i should have uh in my 20s uh, so those are important regrets because as an intellectual, you're, you're conscious that you're, you're just, your firepower is just, it's just reduced. You're not really able to perform at the highest level. Uh, so those are important regrets. And there's nothing I can do about that now because I don't have the available time and probably not the available mental flexibility to go back and get good at math and go back and, and learn Mandarin or, or Russian or something like that. Well, uh, the math regret... Uh, I don't suffer from because my background is in mathematics. And one of the reasons I decided to study mathematics, in a sense, is the antidote to what you ended up with. And that is that I thought it doesn't matter if I end up becoming a mathematician or not. I needed the most you know, structured base possible. Many of the top psychologists all started off as undergraduates in mathematics. Amos Tversky, Daniel yeah. Kahneman, my former doctoral supervisor, uh, myself, I, I'm, a, I'm a math major. So, so I, I can appreciate why you have that little regret in your heart. Regarding the, other, the, the language one, I have a similar regret, but it's not to me, but rather to my children. I speak four languages, uh, English, 
French, Arabic, and Hebrew. Arabic is my mother tongue, Hebrew because we're Lebanese Jews. Uh, but I deeply regret that we didn't pass on that linguistic richness to our children. My wife also speaks Armenian because she's mm. Lebanese Armenian. But here's the problem, Neil. If I speak to our children in Arabic or Hebrew, she's out of the conversation. If she speaks to them in Armenian, I'm out of the conversation. So what did the two idiot parents do? We, we didn't speak in those languages. So they only speak English and French. And I deeply regret that. Yeah, Jan could have uh, taught uh, Thomas and Campbell, our, our boys, not only uh, to speak uh, Somali, but also uh, Swahili, Amharic. Uh, wow. She has uh, uh, some Arabic and Dutch I'm 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 a comparative slacker in languages compared <laughs> with my wife, but yep, we end up speaking English, and and therefore our children end up being uh, victims of yeah. of uh, the Anglosphere's monoglot pathology, and it it does shut you out of a huge cultural uh, experience, which is the experience of of being someone somewhat different in a yeah. different language. Each language has its own personality. My German personality is quite different from my uh, my Anglo-American or Scottish personality because you can't really make jokes in German. Right. That's not the point of speaking German. And so when I'm in German mode, uh, I, I, I had to learn to do this because where I come from, Glasgow, all conversations are intended ultimately to get to something funny. That's the point <laughs> of a conversation. And, and uh, you can't do that in German. And, and it took me years of trying to be funny in German and failing. Uh, to realize that my German persona had to, in fact, be unfunny. It's quite liberating <laughs> to be a serious German occasionally. I've been, I've, I've gone to, I've been invited by Gerd Gigerenzer to the Max Planck Institute. This is back in 2001. And, you know, being kind of the joking type, I started, yeah, I started joking and there was no reaction from the Germans. I quickly learned that I better remove all humor from any future uh, lectures in, Never in Germany. Never make jokes. Yeah in Germany. And this was John Kerry's experience when he explained, he thought he was being funny, that in the United States, there were many rights, uh, uh, right to free speech, right to bear arms. And, and, he, and he said, and the right to be stupid. <laughs> and he waited for the laughter. And then he realized that it was all being written down. And Germans <laughs> were nodding earnestly. Yeah, das Dummheitsrecht. Yeah, das ist richtig. So I, I think, can I add one more regret before we Please, run? please. Yes, go ahead. Uh, I'm a I'm an amateur musician. I play the double bass, uh, and uh, one of the joys of my life has been uh, to play in a jazz band. Ever since I was an Oxford undergraduate, the band is called The Night in Tunisia, and my best friends uh, are the other musicians, and we've kept that going uh, through thick and thin forty years of wow. uh, amateur jazz playing. But I regret not being better as a musician. I never properly read music. I never properly studied music. I play by ear in the great tradition of improvised music, but I, I would be much better if I really understood music properly. And I, I regret not sticking to the piano lessons that I was offered as a kid. Now I, I try to impose piano lessons on all my children uh, and they all hate them. And it, it's a source of friction uh, between me and them. And not one of them has really emerged as a musician. Campbell, who's four, is my last shot at producing <laughs> someone who can play Beethoven sonatas to me in my old age. 
and uh, that's a lot of pressure. You should read. Boy. You should read the if you haven't already uh, the book by Amy Chua, the the Tiger Mom book, because in the book, if you haven't read it, uh, she she explains how brutal she was in 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 her expectations, her parental expectations with her children. One is I think a violinist, one is a pianist. So maybe reread that book if you've already read it to get inspired as to how to be a tiger dad in this case. It's too late for me to become a tiger dad, I think. But you should hear me on the touchline when Thomas is playing football. There's another famous Ferguson, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, of one of the great... With the noisy neighbors, the, na the noisy neighbors. So Alex Ferguson's famous hairdryer, the halftime uh, uh, stream of Glaswegian invective is something that occasionally, occasionally my children have experienced. Uh, but, you know, if, if you ask yourself, what's it all about? I'll tell you what it's all about, Gad. On, on Sunday, I flew back uh, from Austin uh, to California and made it just in time for Thomas's under-11 soccer club game, Palo Alto soccer against, I forget who they were playing now, uh, perhaps better not to mention it. 2-1 was the final score to Palo Alto. Thomas scored the winner. Oh, nice. My mother was there to watch it. It doesn't get better than it that. It doesn't. You're... Pretty much, I mean, that could die happy now. What a, what a beautiful way to end our conversation. You are even more delightful than I expected you to be, and that's saying a lot. Thank you so much for coming. Stay on the line so we could say goodbye officially offline. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure having you. Thanks. It was a pleasure for me to get, and I look forward to welcoming you to Hoover and then to Austin. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Cheers. Hey, guys, I hope that you enjoyed my uh, chat with uh, the delightful and wise uh, Neil Ferguson. If you appreciate the work that I do, it takes a lot of effort. It involves a lot of risks. Uh, please consider supporting my work in any way that you can. You can uh, uh, donate to my work in one of several ways. You can click the heart icon at the bottom of the YouTube clip. You can also use one of the donation platforms, uh, Patreon, PayPal, Subscribestar to uh, show your support. So you could also, of course, uh, share the clips. Word of mouth is important. Uh, so there are many ways by which you can help support this work. Uh, I thank you for your uh, attention. And as always, thank you for your interest. Cheers, everybody.